Hello and welcome to CryptoMine. I'm Ryan Olke. And this is Vincent Horn, and we're here to explore crypto from the inside out. Boom. Yes, welcome back to episode two of CryptoMind. Uh, we'll introduce ourselves briefly again in case you're new to this show and new to us. So as I said, I'm Ryan Olke. I'm the CEO of Power Productions, and I'm the author of Cryptocurrency for Newbies, which is an ebook for beginners. So if you're new to this space and you're wondering about key questions about what cryptocurrency is and how do you get involved and what wallets are and things like that, that's what this book is for. So you can check that out at ebook.cryptonewbies.com. And I'm Vincent Horn. I'm a podcaster at BuddhistGeeks.org, the original podcast Ryan and I started a decade ago together, still going, and a meditation teacher. I tend to teach geeky people how to uh, train their attentions and gain insight into what it's like to be a human being, um, although I'm still working on that. And uh, also in the crypto space, I've been advising recently a project called the Lotus Network, um, which is bringing um, Buddhist practice onto the blockchain. Um, so I'm very interested in this space, not just from the perspective of crypto itself, but also on how crypto can impact the world in interesting and uh, new ways. Cool. Well, so let's dive into this episode. And today we're going to explore FOMO and FUD. And for people who don't know what that means, FOMO is fear of missing out and FUD is fear, uncertainty and doubt. And these two experiences and feelings and relating to cryptocurrency is pretty darn common individually and collectively. So it'll just come up. And um, we wanted to explore it from multiple angles, um, not just simply around what it means to fear about the prices of cryptocurrency, but the whole kit and caboodle. And I think we're going to take some um, deep dives here into this. Um, Vince, what do you want to say about this exploration? Yeah, just that, I mean, these two terms, like within, I don't know, maybe a few weeks of getting more involved in the crypto space and seeing people who were investing in it, um, who are putting their time and energy and, and kind of investing their attention and their resources into different projects, these two became, uh, rose to the surface as very common terms. And um, it's like, I guess one thing that's interesting to sort of say about it is that there's sort of a connection between the rise and fall of the value of the crypto market and these feelings and these right. kind of right. relationships. So fear, fear of missing out, uh, that's usually described as something that arises when, you know, everything's going up, you know, everything's on the rise. Yeah. People suddenly start to be uh, afraid that they're going to miss out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the results of that are interesting from a kind of investment perspective. Right. Um, cause what usually happen? people usually end up buying things when they're way too inflated and expensive. <laughs> yeah. Well, the interesting thing with these, um, with FOMO and FUD and just my advice that I give people, you know, just basic cryptocurrency involvement is that if they're, if you make these decisions based on these kinds of emotional orientations, the result is usually more dissatisfaction. So like somebody could get in on Bitcoin say today, and if they really feel calm about it and that Bitcoin's going to be something that's going to be great to be a part of five years from now, then you don't really worry. You know, it's like maybe you have a little bit of fear of missing out and so you get involved. But, you know, if it's just pure fear, usually you're going to freak out when the price starts dropping again. <laughs> so it's a sort of up and down roller coaster ride 
when that's your orientation. Yeah. And then it's interesting to, to me, FUD, fear, uncertainty, doubt. Um, this is sort of the interesting cocktail of emotions that start to arise when you're not sure what you should be doing, you know, within yeah. the space. Like, right. should I be holding this? Should I change it over to something else? Should I sell it? Should I yeah. buy more? It's like kind of like, what should I be doing on a micro level yeah. um, in terms of my involvement in the space? And that also, like you said, leads seems to lead to more, basically more stress and yeah and discomfort. And it's funny with um, a meditation on, say, something like equanimity, um, you're usually dealing with witnessing and experiencing these sort of cycles um it's, it's you know it's more than this uh missing out on opportunity and and fear and disillusionment uh, but it's kind of funny to see that cryptocurrency can sort of graph that out you, you can literally follow it with the price you can say here's my equanimity freaking out because i'm missing out here's my equanimity freaking out because uh the price is dropping and i don't know what to do so in a certain way i find it's like actually a nice practice if you can look at it from that perspective of like how can i um really take a step back and, and see how I'm relating to this. Yeah. And then on a bigger scale, I mean, this is, these emotions are kind of what underlies all human collective right. <laughs> <laughs> endeavors where, especially that are market-based, you know, where people are investing yeah. um, some sort of value in, into it and hoping things grow and hoping right. they don't, hoping things don't fail. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just more pronounced perhaps some, if you're involved in cryptocurrency because of how volatile it is, yeah. um, that yeah, you just notice these a lot more, but it really permeates a lot of our human experience just day to day. Yeah. It's interesting. So I have a story around this at some point to share, but I, yeah. I think maybe going back to like a bigger picture question, yeah. um, which was part of how we wanted to explore this topic was, kind of looking at what the first person experience, you know, what is it like to be inside of the yeah. crypto space? Mm -hmm. um, What's it like in this new emerging web? Um, and I guess, I guess the story I will share now is yeah. that when in 2012, 2013, 2014, you know, when I first became aware of the space, which I talked a bit about in the first episode, um, I was excited about it and, and, in and did invest some in the space. But at that time, it was so uncertain whether or not this would be a thing, and there were so few people talking about it or even caring, that what I noticed looking back is that I didn't really feel a lot of FOMO and FUD. I mean, there was maybe a little bit. Yeah. But for the most part, it was like, I don't really have anything to lose because no one really cares about this. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so in a way, I would just, you know, when when I, you know, put a couple Bitcoins into different projects in the, you know, 2014, I just, I, I literally forgot about them. Right. Someone had to remind me. There are um, a lot of stories of that too, actually, about people yeah. who got in, they're like, oh, maybe I have like whatever $50,000 worth of Bitcoin <laughs> they've realized today, but they didn't at the time think about it. Yeah. So it's, that's kind of an interesting retrospective because it's mm -hmm. like, you can't really, can't really be afraid of losing something you don't really care that much about, or it's not something that you worry too right. much about. Right. And it seems like in a way, every, you know, not everyone, because this is still very early kind of space, but a lot more people are getting involved. There's sort of mainstream recognition, you know, uh, regular finance shows are talking regularly now about Bitcoin. And so it's become a thing. Yeah. And now that it's a thing, the FOMO and FUD seems to be more, um, now that we've, right. there's a consensus 
belief or you could say a consensus trance around this stuff starting to form. Now we take it seriously, even though, you know, what is it we're taking seriously to yeah. begin with? You know, it's like kind of distributed ledger records that are in this new computing and distributed computing platform. It's, it's, as, it's as intangible as you can get in a way. Right. Yeah. I think before basically the beginning of this year, um, it was much more like you were talking about. People were just kind of getting involved and um, it shot up this year where collectively at another level, we all decided that this is something really important and the FOMO FUD is, yeah, skyrocketed. Yeah, so I guess we wanted to take a yeah first-person look at this FOMO and FUD and just yeah. explore it. See you know, the other, the other emotion that comes up a lot now that I think everybody has a story on is regret. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, now, see, we've entered a space where regret is pronounced uh, because everyone said, oh, I wish I would have listened, especially to you, Vince. Uh, we have a lot of friends who said, I wish I would have listened to Vince when he told me about Ethereum. And uh, But everybody has that story. It doesn't matter what the timeline is or who the person is. I, almost everybody I talk to says, oh, I wish I would have been involved one year before. So it's kind of a regret is, I guess, maybe another version of FOMO. Yeah. <laughs> it's a FOMO that's already passed. <laughs> FOMO that's realized. <laughs> yeah, FOMO realized. <laughs> it's the fruition of FOMO. Yeah, yeah, totally. Right. Okay, cool. So I found a couple quotes from someone uh, that some people may know. He's a Tibetan Buddhist teacher who's long passed, but he was uh, a pivotal character in bringing Buddhist practice to America and he was kind of like a mega superstar in the 70s, you know, at the time where spiritual practice was becoming a really big thing and Buddhism was becoming popularized. You know, this guy was uh, filling, you know, stadiums full of people to come listen to him talk in his Tibetan English. Um, his name is Chuggyam Trungpa. And uh, he's, he founded a place at, in Boulder that both Ryan and I went to as students called Naropa University. And it's a very weird, interesting, hippie <laughs> hippie college uh, exploring kind of how to bring contemplative awareness into various disciplines like business and art and healing and psychotherapy and things like that. Um, and his, I guess his legacy in a way was that he was really a modernizer and an innovator. He was taking these really traditional forms of contemplative practice um, you know, where you go off into caves and do like what years of retreat oftentimes, um, just meditating all day, every day by yourself and sort of focused on how to integrate that into Western culture, um, which really was kind of a, a, in many ways, a new thing. And so um, he had a lot to say about the topic of hope and fear. And to me, that's, one of the most interesting parts of the FOMO and FUD is that you know, yep. both of them have the term fear in them, mm -hmm. fear of missing out, fear, uncertainty, doubt. But you know, from Trungpa's perspective, you, you can't have fear without also having hope. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can't be fearless until you also know what it's like to be hopeless. Mm -hmm. And um, there's one good line he says here, which is when we face things as they are, we give up hope for something better. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I just want to throw Trunkpa out there and this whole idea of hope and fear, because to me, what's not being talked about so much with FOMO and FUD is the amount of excitement, the hope, the idealism, the kind of um, 
the other side of the fear, which is enabling all of this fear uh, to begin with and yeah. that people are bringing into the space and, and, and maybe not seeing as necessarily problematic or um, something to be concerned about. It's like that hope is good, right? I mean, we live in, a, you know, didn't Obama run on hope or yeah. Hope, yeah. <laughs> hope and change? Right. Um, so I don't know. What do, you, what do you think about that that idea of hope and fear being connected? Yeah, I think it's huge. And I think there's also a, a bit of a paradox here. Um, so in the context of Trungpa and, and these quotes, often um, we're talking about um, enlightenment and that kind of realization. And so sitting on a cushion, usually my job in, in that moment is to just be with things as they are. You know, I'm not trying to change anything. I'm trying to kind of let go of this hope fear cycle, not that they don't arise and pass, but just that I'm not too much involved with it. But um, with cryptocurrency and things like that, we are still dealing with what might happen and what might not happen. I mean, that's part of making smart decisions, part about how they develop cryptocurrency. So it's really like a challenge on another level of how do I relate to my hope and fear and yet still participate in something that's ongoing and evolving. And so that was just something that came up for me as like, particularly challenging. But, you know, when I look on Facebook, it's it's really obvious. I'll see some folks on there, not necessarily even newbies, people who might have been in the space a while. And I just see them freaking out or going really hyper. And I, my reaction is just, I want to come from a trunk of place of like, this quote right here is like, just give up on the hope thing and you'll feel better. You'll feel so much better and you probably make better decisions anyways. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it, it's, it's a bit of a paradox because we're trying to make smart decisions and about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, getting kind of contemplative geeky for a minute. I mean, it's, it's maybe not so well known except outside of the circles of people who really spend a lot of time doing kind of contemplative practices where you're just sitting with your experience and knowing it as it is facing things as they are. Where, you know, the first, I, I guess you could say like the first stage of that in some way is letting go of attachment to yes. the cycles of, of fear and hope. Right. Um, and that seems to be in some ways like distancing oneself from um, the world. Yeah. And it feels like that too. Like that, that really is a legitimate stage of practice where you have to kind of let go. Yeah. You might have to isolate that sort of issue for a moment or for a phase yeah. so you can kind of really get familiar with it. Yeah. Getting familiar with it and take and taking out the things that, or maybe triggers for for one like that. That's a that's a traditional practice where you kind of remove the things that will trigger those really addictive patterns of mind and and brain. Um, but then the lighter stage is once yes. you've been able to do that well enough. You know, you're not constantly caught in fear and hope and uncertainty and doubt, and and sort of just recognize, oh, these are emotions, these are feelings, there's stories attached to them. And they don't necessarily signify anything real per se. <laughs> per, per se. Per se. <laughs> um, they're information, but a lot of it, you know, might just be internally generated uh, or based on everyone else's reactions and responses. Right. right. Yeah. I think like, um, at least this is for me, but um the more that I can kind of see through the hope and fear cycle within myself, I feel more free to respond. And I, and I thought about the, the Zen koan that you had um, clued me in on a while back. I don't remember who the teacher was, but the basic gist was the, the student asked the teacher, what's the, 
what are the teachings of a lifetime? And the master said uh, an appropriate response. Um, so I don't know if you remember the, the koan or the teacher for that, but that comes up too, as like sort of like being able to respond more actively or appropriately to the information we're given, so which I think would speak to a kind of a later phase of this development of relating to hope and fear. Yeah. It's like, a, it's a maturation of, right. like of a certain kind of training and, and just being able to be with what's there. And, and I don't think this is specific to contemplative, to contemplatives. It's just right. that contemplatives have all these practices and means and yeah. and teachings about being able to do this. Totally. I mean, that's why I said, I think actually like if, if you're aware of this, cryptocurrency can be an incredibly good practice because it's so triggering on this. So for me, it, it, it can be a good source of practice. But yeah, the contemplatives are the folks who have really put a lot of energy into understanding this and coming up with methods to work with it. Yeah. And so when we sort of enter a space where things are volatile, uncertain, changing, and we ha we are invested in it. Like, and I mean that not like yeah. monetary investment, but there's some amount of emotional investment. Yeah. Um, yep. Like our identity is tied up with what's happening, um, which happens just as much with things that aren't monetary, like, you know, our kids or our friends, or our family members, you know, what happens to them is something we get totally, you know, caught up in. And then, you know, like you're saying that, that maturation process, which I think any human being can do. And the, it's a common thing across different human disciplines it's as yeah. common in business as it is in contemplative practice as it is in activist circles where you know one sort of gains a kind of resiliency mm -hmm. um and ability to even if they get knocked off their center they know how to return like they know how to let go and come back to face things as they are and then learn how to like you said respond um to yeah. the situation which is it, it's like that's advanced mature um human human activity there <laughs> yeah it's like totally. what a, a mature adults do <laughs> yeah um, absolutely and i think you're right that you can come about this in a lot of different forms i mean anything that's like challenging you that way and that you're um actively intentionally wrestling with i mean even you know like relationship being in relationship <laughs> will challenge these things a lot being a dad you know i'm not a dad but i know you probably get challenged on that a lot uh, of of the fear cycles and stuff mm -hmm. so i think they're all sources of of being able to work with this um i I wanted to throw out here randomly. I don't know if there's anything to follow up on this, but Dong Shan's ranks. I, I just, that was another book you turned me on to, but, but talking about these cycles of development, um, particularly in that responsive cycle uh, or, or phase and stage um, is a really good book. So I don't know. I just wanted to toss it out so we can put it in the links for folks. Um, Cause I think he, uh, that commentary in that book is really good uh, on this, on some of this, especially the responsive part. Yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting. But I mean, Dongshan is like a Zen master from I don't know thousand years yeah. ago or something. And yet, yeah. you know, the basic stages of development that he describes are like they seem to be as relevant now as they they were then. Yeah, when I like um, the commentary and the teachings in the in the kind of final stages about the being engaging with life directly and how that responsiveness happens. And, you know, in, in Trungpa's tradition, which is in generally the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, that's the one I'm most familiar with. And I come from, um, you know, they, they use the, um, phrase enlightened activity a lot and that kind of gets at it, but sometimes it's a little bit, um, 
maybe too uh, too idealistic sounding from the outside. Mm. And but what, what's described, at least in the commentary of Dongshan's ranks, is a little bit more messy. Like it's saying it, it, this might not look pretty. Like your response and your dealing with all this might not be perfection. It might not meet some ideals, but you will be more engaged. You will be more responsive. Um, and whatever is the best possible outcomes are going to be there. So I don't know. I wanted to make that differentiation when we're talking about responsiveness, especially for anybody who's tied into contemplative teachings. There can be a lot of idealism on that front too. Yeah. I mean, sometimes an appropriate response just means like being cool headed when someone's freaking out or, you know, trusting one, trusting, trusting one's intuition when, you know, the information coming from the outside is saying elsewise, you know, saying, Oh, you, you should be doing this. I was like, no, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna trust trust my sense of this and uh, and hold and hold firm. Um, yeah, which is kind of in the crypto space another t- term that's interesting, uh, kind of a strategy that I think a lot of us are following, which is the hold and chill. <laughs> the yeah, hold the hold and, and chill. Method, yeah, which yeah, to, that's to the, me that's that's the whole thing of like trust trusting intuition. You know what what are the valuable things that I want to yeah. support, and then just trusting that um you know. I'm in this for the long haul in terms of like, I want to see these projects come to fruition. I want to see what's possible. I want to see how everything unfolds without knowing. Yeah. That's what's going to happen. That was the thing where I I was feeling to go with this too is, so we talk a lot about basically hope and fear, but permeating all of this is not knowing, you know, an uncertainty to a certain degree, um, that, um, I'm going to go with what I know to be best right now. And I'm going to really hold with it and see them come to maturation. But I also don't know what's happening and I'm going to have to stay, you know, aware and alert and engaged. And how do I feel about sitting with not hundred percent knowing? I mean, I'm, I'm uh, participating in a lot of different cryptocurrencies and maybe some of them work out, maybe some of them don't, but it's like, how do I feel about that? And, um, can I creatively stay curious and, and, my not knowing about what's happening with some of the space. Yeah. And then the other one, uh, fear, uncertainty, doubt, the not knowing that you're talking about with uncertainty, which as you say, it's, it's, it's funny because it seems like our conditioning, uh, most people that have a kind of Western background education and culture, you know, the, yeah. the idea of not knowing is like terrible. Yeah. Yeah, I know. That's that's why I thought too, because we say fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and when it's wrapped up in that whole thing, yeah. it feels really negative. But I'm like, uncertainty by itself and not knowing, that's that's why cryptocurrency can exist on a deeper level, is because there's new things emerging that are not known and that we're changing a lot of things. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, but you're right. It, it really has a negative tone and it's just like, how can I get rid of uncertainty as fast as possible? And it's like, good luck in this volatile space with that. And that, you know, it's, it's just not going to, it's not going to honor your wish for this to be certain <laughs> right, right now. <laughs> right. Sort of a microcosm for the, for the macro yes. human situation, right. which is yep. like yep. the space is uncertain and like, and so is our, you know, so is our life. And you know? but that's not bad. That's not, that's not a bad it's thing. That's why I say, it's, yeah. I mean, sometimes uncertainty feels really bad depending on the situation, but really that's also tied into creativity. Like it just is in curiousness. Yeah. So. That's a really good point. It's the, the uncertainty, the not knowing that makes, makes things possible. Right. Yeah. And it's, I, I think it's, it's, it's what's the interesting distinction for, for many people that they don't perhaps notice is it's not the uncertainty, which feels bad. It's the reaction that we have to the uncertainty. Mm. You know, it's yeah, like, that's a good distinction. Like things are uncertain, but then we, 
we recognize that we feel another term that Trungpa used a lot was groundlessness. We feel yeah. the groundlessness of our situation in various ways. The groundlessness of the crypto space, you know, that's really obvious. Yeah. Um, the bottom drops out and one day everything goes down 25%, you know, in the terms of the larger space. Um, and then it's gro- having these huge growth, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. But then it's like, how do we respond to that uncertainty that that seems to be where fear and doubt come in yeah and it made me think about kind of typical reactions or i might even say coping mechanisms with in the face of uncertainty in the crypto space and the two that i see are um one it's all just nonsense and it's a bubble that's how it is there's nothing good here i feel like that's a sort of response to the uncertainty in a, in in a in a way and then the other is that no it's all magic and it's going to solve every problem we have and it's just you know kind of denying some of the the difficult unknowns of it so it seems like we can have and i see these reactions a lot in articles and on facebook um but staying in that middle space where um where in that not knowing you can i we can figure out what what do we need to do here with uh, with uh, the cryptocurrency? How do we need to participate in it in a way that it evolves the best it can? Yeah, and I, I'd call the two reactions that you just pointed out like yeah the the first one is kind of like cynicism. Yes, you know, like everything's right. It's not just skepticism. Like there's a difference. Cynicism, skeptical. Yeah. someone's skeptical. Like our friend, one of our friends that we that we uh, play video games with. Uh, yeah. <laughs> shout out to the Nama Slay clan. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, you went there. You went there. <laughs> um, right. well, you know, he. We were asking him about like, had, had he heard of crypto and what what did he think? This guy has a technical background, and he said, "He's like, I just don't really know enough to form an opinion, but I'm kind of skeptical." And it wasn't like he was being cynical, like, this is bad, this is terrible. Right. It was just like, like, I don't know, and as a result, I I sort of question it. Um, But that's different than someone, like you're saying, saying everything is shit and this whole thing is a bubble and it's all yes, it's a it's a pyramid scheme. Like that's that's another common refrain from from people who are becoming aware of the space, like, oh, this is a pyramid scheme. Um, Yeah. Well, yeah, when people, when there's no value behind something and a bunch of people are trying to make money, it is a pyramid scheme and there are pyramid schemes and scams yeah. happening um, in this space. Right. Um, but there's a difference between the the, skeptic, the skepticism and the cynicism. Yeah, totally. And then the other um, reaction you talked about, everything's magic. Yeah. Um, I call that idealism. Yep. You know, cynicism and idealism, like those are the two common extreme reactions. And like you said, what's the middle, it's the middle space between yeah. that or the middle way between those. Totally. Yeah. Um, it's the crypto mind, man. That's when you rest in the crypto <laughs> mind. It's the crypto mind. And I know we're, you know, we, we kind of acknowledge that we were going to go, go kind of off, off into the, the deep end here today with this um, episode. Um, but I, I really feel it's super connected to the cryptocurrency space and what we're doing. So I feel like um, even though we're wandering off a little bit from talking about very specific cryptocurrency issues, I just think this permeates the space so much that it's really worth talking about a lot. And I just I see the the hope, the fear, the cynicism, the idealism daily. And it's, um, you know, from one perspective, what, what does it feel like um, individually? What does it feel like collectively and how does this influence the space? You know, what does this do when we come from the space of hope and fear or this reaction cycle? Or, um, how does that influence how the space is developing? You know, um, and I don't necessarily have an answer to that. It's just a question that comes up that I think it does influence it, you know, um, 
so many of the conversations we have online are, are just about the externals of cryptocurrency um, yeah. without talking too much about these internals when they're so related that it influences it so much. You know, fear FOMO can feed on FOMO and then that influences the market. And then you can see, literally, you can see the prices moving up and down and day traders live off of this stuff. They know FOMO and FUD is totally real and that's how they make money. So, so which is to say that this definitely influences externally um, the space uh, in many ways, not just price. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, in some ways, I guess we might even be able to say it's the, it's the sort of internal and collective cycles of fear, uncertainty and doubt that drive the boom and bust cycles of, of the space. Yeah. Totally. I mean, uh, especially uh, right now as it's volatile and it's unknown, the more that this space matures, the volatility will go down and people will have less FOMO and FUD. But right now it's, um, it, it definitely has a big influence both ways. Um, another thing I wanted to throw out that seems um, kind of connected to this and sort of relates to how I've been trying to work with the space is it's like, what does it mean to bring a kind of heart-centered attitude into um, into backing these different projects or supporting them? Because mm. for for me, like again, when I think back to Bitcoin and Ethereum and MadeSafe, like the f- first few projects that I got involved in, I remember hearing about MadeSafe, um, which is a, a sort of a decentralized internet project. They're trying to create an entirely new internet. And when I heard about that and I heard about the technical side of it and I heard about the reasons that they were doing it, um, I heard the the founder, David Irvine, kind of talking about the kind of network they're trying to build. I got really excited about it, not as a kind of yeah. investment vehicle, um, really primarily as in terms of my a, a vision for the world. And so I think too, you know, we can take some of what's already been learned in traditional business spaces, like for instance, the impact investing world, where people are investing in things that they wanna see have, they're investing in things they think are gonna have a positive impact in the world, however they're measuring that, thinking about that. I think here too, it's like heart-centered investment means, you know, we don't necessarily, we aren't just chasing the things that could could grow, but we're, yeah. we're like getting our heart and our, are dollars behind the things that yeah. feel like they can have an impact in the world that are that are that's important. Totally, yeah. It's an interesting conversation to have about the financial piece. Uh, I, I go back and forth. I mean, I'm I'm all for uh, people making money, and th- you know that's that's totally cool with me. Um, but it is a, it's interesting to to wonder how much does money artificially influence how we support or react to projects um, and, you know, having conversations like universal basic income. Like if, if, if your basic needs were taken care of, how would you react? What projects would you support or not support if you were just financially taken care of? Um, and would that allow us to more easily come from a heart centered place? Um, and I'm not trying to be cynical here. I'm just sort of teasing it out. You know, a lot of people are dealing with, their financial life. Some people have a lot of money and that's a different place to come from. And some people don't have very much money and how they spend their money is a big decision. Yeah. And, and, it, and then it influences that it starts creeping into the heart centered space of like, oh my gosh, I'm going to put this money in. Maybe I, I, I really need some money to return. Or if I lose this money, I feel even more worried. So um, I'm just kind of curious how much our, the, the, the money part influences 
the hope, fear, and heart-centered piece. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, oh, this is like... <laughs> Big topic, I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you did some training in uh, psychology. I'm glad one of yeah. your fourth degree was in psychology. Yeah, yeah, right. Because this is, I mean, it, it, gets, it gets into that psychological territory as well of, yeah. you know, um, what, how we feel when, when we're dealing with what are actually or feel like scarce mm. resources yeah um this is something you and i've been talking a lot about because there yeah. is real scarcity in the world yeah. there is really a lack of certain things in the world yeah. um and that includes how our money system system works um yeah. and there's also a lot of incredible amount of abundance um in the yeah. world and 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 it's this weird i mean in one way the time we live in is sort of character by, characterized by this weird these weird extremes of both abundance yeah. and scarcity. Yeah. You know, yep. Where some people have so, so, so much, and then some people yeah. have so little. And, you know, in, in some ways, I guess you could say our evolutionary conditioning is such that we've evolved to be constantly dealing with scarcity and, mm-hmm. and having, and survival is about dealing with scarce resources. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's this kind of well known, um, observation in neuroscience which is that our you know it's called the negativity bias in the brain we've evolved to be able to um uh we've evolved to be much more reactive let's say something like on the order of like five times more reactive to negative stimuli than we are Mm. to positive stimuli so Mm. basically like the, the the brain is like um, Teflon to good things and it's like glue to the bad stuff like anything that feels bad or, or is a threat like we immediately latch onto um, and that's part of our evolutionary heritage and everything that's good we kind of it just kind of slides off of us and we don't really even take that much time to honor it or acknowledge it or feel it um, because it's like well the good things are fine it's the bad things that could really you know they really that, that's that's what could you know lead yeah. to death <laughs> essentially right Right. What do you think of that? Yeah. No, totally. Um, I, I think, yeah, the, the polarized time we live in the, the, um, the extremes, you know, and normally, you know, I'm a, I default to being a person that comes from the sort of interior perspectives. That's just where I like to spend my time. There's not really special about that. I just do that. Um, and I don't usually, I, I preference that side of the equation. So like interior psychology, relationship, meditation, that kind of thing. But then, you know, systemic um, perspectives are incredibly important right now. And that's also what cryptocurrencies, a lot of cryptocurrency is set out to disrupt is the social economic systems we're a part of. But I do think about that a little bit um, when it's like how much power do, do certain individuals have to sort of change their systemic situation, their financial disposition, such um, that they can eliminate some of this worry. Like how much worry is legitimate, you know, in this uh, space, given the disparity of wealth. Um, so yeah, I, it's, I wrestle with this paradox because I'll, I'll pay attention to things like what Trump points to. And this is very much in my um, realm to have an influence on. I can sit with my own hope and fear. I can touch into a space sort of that goes beyond hope and fear, which can change how I relate, regardless of my financial situation. I can have tap into something deeper than that. Yet at the same time, rent still needs to be paid. <laughs> Bills need to be paid. And in in a time with wealth and inequality such that it is, um, 
I pay attention to the systemic stuff a lot more about how it influences decision making for for some folks. And I also been noticing if you look at addresses and cryptocurrency, we can start seeing some of this wealth and quality being replicated ironically um, in the space, even though, you know, some of the motivation behind cryptocurrency is to decentralize, decentralize um, how money is handled and ideally for a lot of them decentralized wealth. Yeah, and there's, but that's a, but that's an assumption. I want to say that that's an assumption. Yeah, and it's it's to me it's like one of the strongest strands of idealism in the space right now, right? Which is a kind of libertarian idealism. Yeah, and yeah. you know I I feel uh, a lot of kinship to this perspective. There's a lot of parts yeah, of the libertarian totally. ideology that I like, um, and 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 it's obviously very clearly one of the driving forces right now in the space, along with this more, I guess you could call it conventional perspectives that are coming in and just saying, Hey, there's an opportunity here to do what we're already doing better. Um, yeah. which is, you know, like that's, that's also true. And a lot of projects are, are, are built on, you know, more conventional foundations. Um, so yeah, that's also an interesting area of exploration yeah i know we will probably end up exploring this in episodes in the future so yeah we don't have to open the can of worms but i was um i was really floored one day when i when i found a website that you could kind of look at different cryptocurrencies like bitcoin or ethereum and it'll tell you the most wealthy addresses and you don't necessarily know 100 percent. maybe an address is like 10 people sharing an address probably not uh, uh but you could you could definitely notice some that this is there's inequality here um, or people might use the different word. That's a sort of uh, value word there, um, but disproportion, or um, you could see the, how the, the cryptocurrency ownership was proportioned out through addresses. And I was floored. I, I didn't expect it when I saw it. And I was really, I was kind of floored that I didn't hear other people talking about it at the time. So to me, I was like, what the hell? This is an ideal that I hear about, but I don't really see it being realized quite yet. It doesn't mean it won't be. Anyways, the short version of this conversation is that I could see how that influences the whole FOMO FUD and, you know, how we relate to it. I, uh, it's understandable. Yeah. And, you know, I think to, to bring some like a, I guess, more maturity into the space as it matures, yep. as it's maturing. Yeah. Right. It's like part of part of that maturity seems to be like to examine our ideals. You know, what kind of ideals and hopes are we bringing to this? Yes. And are we in a sense like projecting onto the space, you know, to use a right. psychological and term? Yeah. Be willing to do that. I think that's, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I I'm hoping we can, <laughs> I'm, here's my hope <laughs> is that <laughs> if I don't, I don't mind if I do throw a hope in there, um, is that we can do that more. That's all I want folks to do in this space is, and honestly, I could say this in a lot of other spaces politically is just, can we sit in that unknown a little bit more, not in a cynical way, Right, as you said, um, but in a way that's that can be skeptical and curious and creative, and we can question things. We can say, "Okay, here is my hope, and let's actually talk about it." Maybe there's some good things in here, and what am I, what am I projecting? What am I? Um, what do I? What don't I know? And what am I unwilling to look at in the moment? What am I kind of attached to? And just explore it all a little bit more. I think that it would be good. Yeah, yeah, and it's I, I I agree, and I think the thing that's easy to overlook with hope is that hope has us overlook things. Um, yeah. You know, when we got really, you and I, you know, we got really 
excited about Facebook and Twitter and as oh, good point. projects yes. were coming up, we were like, oh man, this is so cool. We can connect. Oh we man. Can, you know, there's yeah. ways we can share information now and connect with each other, you know, non-locally. We don't have to call, be calling each other all the time. And it just, you know, from a technological perspective, it was really exciting. And there was a lot of hope yeah. and idealism about how these oh, networks could change things. And they have in certain ways. Yes. But oh. dot, dot, <laughs> dot. <laughs> like, oh man, we, we blew past that. I, I'm glad you brought that up. Man, we blew past so many things that we didn't look at with that hope. <laughs> yeah. And now, and now we're locked uh, into networks that, um, you know, have great things about them and, and, and then also, also some really awful things about them. Totally. And I think that's, and now we're at the point where everybody, uh, not everybody. Okay. A lot of us have switched our collectively our orientation to some of these folks like Google, we mentioned them last time throwing rocks at the Google bus, you know, Google was one of those big hopes like, wow, we have access to all the information on the internet in the click of a button. And now we're throwing freaking rocks at the bus. Right. And then we see Amazon buy whole foods of the day. And, and I see a bunch of people reacting and being like, oh, that sucks. And uh, all these, uh, critical perspectives, which a lot of them I agree with in a certain way. Um, but it's, I want us to just own collectively that we were all part of this. You know what I mean? Like I was a part of it. I said, Google, yay, Facebook, yay, Twitter. I told everybody to get on it. I was a part of that. It wasn't just Twitter duping us all. And uh, you know what I mean? It's like, I was just really hopeful and idealistic and I didn't bother to question the assumptions then. So I think that's something we can do now. I feel a lot more people are doing it. So like, let's question a little bit more and sit with the unknown and uncertainty. And maybe we have better outcomes this go around in this technological sort of um, paradigm shift. Yeah. And and what can we take that we've already learned, you know, from yes. Web 1.0, Web 2.0? Yeah. Um, right. I mentioned last episode that Web 2.0 was like driven largely by mobile. And I think that's partially true, but it's it was also really driven by c content creation, like decentral the decentralization of content creation. People all over the place could suddenly become creators, you know, it could be blogging, you know, which we were doing in the early days could be podcasting, which we also were doing. We, we were riding this wave and, and, and feeling the liberating power of, of having a yeah. voice, um, and not being, um, not being stuck in the centralized media channels that had, had dominated right. society for a long time prior. Yeah. And it's like, okay, w what's happening now? And how do we, how can we sort of bring those same lessons? You know, it's like, if, if yeah. we give all of our power over to certain organizations as they help liberate us are we yep. really free or yeah. are we or are we trading a certain kind of freedom for a new kind of bondage and yeah. i think that's the thing like maybe there's no way out of that paradox maybe there's always some trade-offs but how could we minimize um that with this next wave and what what kinds of projects are really thinking thoughtfully about these issues and are trying not to repeat the same mistakes of the last few cycles of the, of the web. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. What are the trade-offs? What are the potential costs of moving forward with certain solutions? And I, yeah, we're, we're really talking about pushing against idealism here. Um, and, or at least being willing to question it. Um, it seems like the fear side of this equation is just mainly people poo-pooing <laughs> the space, uh, but they'll be feeling FOMO probably soon enough. They'll feel FOMO. Yeah. <laughs> so welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. So there's not much to say about that side of things, much more to say about the idealistic part, um, because that's the, that's the creative force, um, in the cryptocurrency space. Yeah. And it's idealistic to, to think about how we can do things differently. I mean, that, that is totally. idealism itself. Right. It's not a bad thing. Um, 
in and of itself, which is like, how much can we um, really take a look at what we're doing while we're doing it rather than realizing it 10 years from now? <laughs> right, right. And there's a term I really love that kind of is almost like a synthesis of some of what we're talking about here, which is um, pragmatic idealism. Yeah, that's a good it's one. It's an interesting one because, you know, the total pragmatist perspective, you know, when you're just being pragmatic about everything is, you know, what works and how do I get it to work? Um, and that's, I think that's a perspective that's really important in a lot of fields. And it's like, don't forget the best practices of what's already working um, and, and learn how to apply those and learn how to actually, you know, business term, like execute. Um, you remember, you remember our first startup or I guess yeah, it was our yeah. second startup after Buddhist Geeks, we were, yeah, the Falling right. Fruit TV where we had 10 yeah. hyper idealists together who, oh, you know, all of us to some level or another, uh, like needed to learn that lesson uh, at that yep. time. And yep. that's a tough one to uh, learn if you're, you know, hyper idealistic and think it's all about having these new ideas and um, and changing the status quo. It's like, yeah, good luck changing it if you don't know how to how to actually execute. <laughs> yeah, and that execution usually, I mean, it just seems it always brings up paradoxes and 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 uh, being willing to wrestle with those in the space because idealism meeting reality, it's a kind of a fireworks show. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trump, Trump again, when we face things as they are, we give up hope. We give up the hope of something better. I don't think he means that we don't right. care and we don't want things to be better, you know, but yeah. it's more like we give up trying to, the, the sort of attachment to them being a certain, a certain way. Um, that's yeah. other than how they, how they currently are. Right. Attachment to how they are. Yeah. Or how they could be. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to the D part of FUD. Could we FUD back? Go back to the could D. We rewind to, to to the FUD D. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, doubt. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is one that um, the Buddhist contemplative tradition has like a crap ton to say about. Um, and it's interesting because there's almost like two competing understandings of doubt in Buddhism. And one of them is that like doubt is a, is a something you want to avoid. Um, and, and that perspective says anytime there's doubt arising, the antidote to that feeling of doubt is mindfulness. Um, the only way to deal with doubt is to be aware, to be mindful of what's happening um, when we mm -hmm. face things as they are. So mm -hmm. that's, I was on a meditation retreat years ago and I was in a, uh, going through like a three days where all I was feeling was FUD. I was like in a FUD stage. <laughs> I, I love how the word sounds like what it means. <laughs> FUD. <laughs> That's a good word. Good. And, and what, I mean, all meditators know you go through these phases, right? Where the, all you feel is FUD. It's like, just, yep. it's just really FUDly. And, yep. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I remember I almost got to the point where I just, uh, I was really considering just giving up meditation altogether. I was like, I don't think this thing is working. And I, and the thing was, I was just like ruminating and ruminating and ruminating and worrying and worrying and worrying about it. Um, and that, and it was so painful. The FUD was so like, so clearly painful. And yet I really thought that the problem was 
the problem lie, you know, with me. Um, I'm doing the yeah. wrong thing. You know, it shouldn't be uh, this way. It should be like yeah. blissful or clear or, you know, it should be easy. And then I went into the, you know, talk to the meditation teacher, you know, every couple of days on a retreat, you go in and like sort of check in. And I was telling her what was happening. And she said, the only antidote to doubt is mindfulness. And then I took that and I actually started to kind of try to notice these feelings and these thoughts instead of just sort of believing them. Yep. And that really did help unstick me from the FUD. And then the, it moved through, like it changed mm. into something else. Yep. Um, yeah. And so That's I good. guess like to me, part of, you know, part of how this applies to the crypto space and part of what, what we're talking about is, you know, there's, there's ups and downs. There's, there's constant, there's constant ups and downs. There's oscillations that occur. And, um, you know, one of the most common oscillations we experience as humans are like the seasons. Um, Trump had another good line, hope and fear cannot alter the seasons. Um, and so there's some amount of ups and downs that we can't, like we can't change and we can't control and we just have to kind of ride them out. But there's something about, um, from a contemplative perspective, just being able to notice these cycles and and these oscillations, these ups and downs, and not get so tied up in them so that we can just let them play out. You know, we sort of let them play out. We're like, oh yeah, this is the way, this is the way this, this space is. Yeah. Things are going up, then things are going down. Things are going up and things are going down. And I'm, I'm like on the ride, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's not a bad ride. It's just, it's just a ride. Yeah. Right. Right. That's great. Yeah. And I, I like to think of these as capacities that we can cultivate, you know, um, which, you know, in the, in the contemplative space, again, it can have its own set of idealisms yes. that uh, people can develop. And for me, when I think about it, these as capacities, like my ability to ride the seasons as a capacity, that's something I can keep, I can deepen more and more and more over time. And the, the stronger that capacity is, the more access I have to it, the better able I am to respond to what's going on in the cryptocurrency space. As we talked about earlier, the appropriate response. Um, and yeah, I love these quotes. They, they really, he really nailed it. It's funny too, because you were talking about how, you know, we need to respond and, um, and it's also interesting because the crypto spaces are not the seasons. I mean, there's, right. there's a lot of change and growth and new, new things emerging. Whereas the season. Yeah, totally. Not, not including, um, you know, climate change in the mix. Um, but the seasons, you know, are, are these relatively stable, predictable things exactly continue to cycle through. And it's like, yep. we've got cycles on the one hand, there's cycles of ups and downs, you know, of growth and then expansion and contraction. But then, then there's something else happening underneath all of that. And that's the reason we're yeah. here. Um, right. Yeah. To kind of be part of that emerging thing mm. that's kind of growing yeah. underneath all of the expansion and contraction, the, the deeper, I guess the deeper expansions and contractions <laughs> underneath yeah. the surface yeah. layer. Right you know, and what, what those things mean um, mm. and what they mean for all of us, not just yeah. what they mean to, to me. Yeah. At least that's, that's my, that's my idealistic hope. I like it. Yeah. What else do we have here? Do we feel like we went deep enough? out there enough <laughs> or, I mean, we opened up a lot of can of worms here too, for sure. I think there's a lot of, um, 
a lot more we can explore in some of this, the things we discussed today. Um, you had some practical, you had some uh, notes on, yeah. on like practical ways of processing FOMO and FUD. Yeah, true. Well, you know, I feel like we've, so we've, we've at least hinted about some of that, like in the, in meditation techniques, I guess, um, maybe we haven't mentioned specific ones, but you know, like equanimity practices, mindfulness, as you mentioned, was a good, uh, way of, uh, practically, um, uh, dealing with that. Um, so I think there's a lot of meditation practices that could be discussed about how to cultivate these capacities. Um, you know, the big things was like paradox, not knowing equanimity. Those are the ones that stood out to me as like any technique that helps me develop that's going to be really useful or sitting with things as they are, you know, um, core transformation was another one I brought up. I haven't done a bunch of that. I know you've explored it maybe even a little bit more, but that was a thought I had coming up of like digging down deeper into what's underneath my superficial reaction. So this is much more from the psychological perspective. Um, so like if I'm feeling fear, how can I dive in a little deeper to something that's a little bit more centered and stable to myself of what I'm really wanting here? Yeah. You know, am I going after something that's just a little bit more reactive and superficial? But if I dive, dive, dive down deeper, I might tap into something that I already have in me in a certain way, or that I can find a better way of getting at that versus reactivity. So maybe I'm looking for an experience of peace, you know, just something or, or of easefulness, um, some version of that. Well, maybe I can tap into that right now. And if I can, how will that change my reaction? You know, I still, maybe I still in a simple thing, like maybe I buy some Bitcoin, maybe I end up doing that. I don't know. Um, but I can tap into that. Or if I'm, if I can't quite find out what's going on there, at least I might, my exploration will be a little bit more nuanced and tapped into my experience versus kind of surface level reactions that might just keep throwing me in the rock tumbler of life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I, you, you bring up a really interesting point here, which is around, um, motivation, yeah. or intention like wh- why yeah. is it that you're here why are you in the crypto space why are you like what what is it what is the deeper calling it's, what's the deeper reason that drives you to, yeah. to even engage in this stuff um this is a good point and you kind of hinted at this earlier too talking about the hard intention of, of this and what's interesting i'll tell you um seeing kind of people on both sides of of some intentions here um so I, we have some friends who are in it really because they deeply believe in the space. Um, we have a, a few friends who really, they just been in, uh, putting in their investment and they're, they're not worried about the, the return on it. They're just sitting in it. You know, I mean, they will get a big return, but they're in it because they, they have principles. I also follow some day traders who really their only motivation is, you know, a lot of it's uh, around money, but what I've in a simple way, the clarity of intention produces a different response in them. That's what I've noticed. Um, and I mean, I have a feeling about this, like I, I like to merge and have the heart part about it and the principles in there, but still even on a simple level, be really being really clear about one's intention has a tremendous impact, I find. Yeah, I mean, the uh, Tibetans who've mentioned a number of times, they have a so saying, everything rests on the tip of intention or motivation. Mm. So they, you know, from their kind of culture, yeah. which is so it's a contemplative culture. I mean, the whole thing is built on that basis in a certain way, and, and which isn't to say that they're perfect or we should idealize them um, by any means, but it's just saying, you know, they've got this sort of strong culture and history, you know, thousands of years of people meditating in caves up in the, up in these, you know, yeah. super high mountains, fairly isolated yeah. from the rest of the world. Right. And so, you know, they 
came up with this kind of perspective and idea that you know in, in t- intention one's intention is sort of what underlies things it's kind of like where we put our intention is 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 kind of uh, what everything that grows grows out of of those kinds of deeper intentions and and then the tricky thing is like how to know what my real intentions are like what am i yeah you know, what am i really being driven by um totally you know and i um one of the ideals kind of principles behind core transformation that i mentioned um i'm just i'm just extracting this so don't take this as a description of core transformation literally but is the idea of diving down deeper layer 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 until you get to like something you can't get past you know so it's like okay my intention is this okay yeah the, the core so you just keep asking the question and then what and then what or how come how come how come you just keep asking these questions over until you find you can't go anywhere else and of course going through that it's a little bit of a capacity too because we can have strong resistances at different levels of penetrating down into the core um but once we get there then we can i think once you get to a core of something you can still then ask even more questions about that like okay now i'm at my core intention how does that show up how does how does that um make me feel how does that influence my life do i i want to shift to a different core yeah what what does that mean you know in terms of how do i act what does that mean yeah. yeah, that's cool. And, you know, one thing I think we if we didn't mention, I'd feel bad about it is, you know, oh, yeah. and this is one of the downsides of a lot of contemplative practice is that it's framed mostly in terms of one's individual experience. Yes. But, I mean, yes. the reality more, I think, is that we're really deeply networked creatures. And so, you know, we're, ne- we're networked with each other and we're made up by the connections between us. So, you know, when five of my friends start saying something like that really impacts me. Um, And so, you know, I think part of this too is seeing like which intentions am I uh, picking up and which ones am I acting out Mm -hmm. that are part of my my social networks? Yeah. Um, You know, am I just kind of going along with, um, you know, with what everyone's saying? without stopping for a moment and examining and being, you know, critical? Um, or am I just kind of being swept along by my networks? And I think it's so it's so easy to do that. I mean, it's just so easy because we don't have time and the resources yeah. to stop and question everything, obviously. But uh, that's where like kind of hive mind and group mind can really um, become problematic if and, and, and here, like, I think there's the individual practice of stopping and checking in and seeing, you know, what am I feeling? Is this FUD? Is this FOMO? Um, but then there's also the thing of, like we talked about in the last episode, of making sure that we connect to multiple networks that have different perspectives um, that don't, so that we're not putting ourselves in an echo chamber um, where everyone is saying the same thing and believing the same thing. Because those echo chambers are like they're so far off most of the time from what's actually going on right yeah i'm i actually would be interested in maybe exploring this whole idea of being part of networks uh in the future um because so the individual experience feels sort of like a prerequisite you know uh, of some to, to some degree to kind of like be able to tap into these things in some basic way individually um, because it's a little less complicated but i feel like my intuition is that our identities have really shifted over to the 
a collective network sort of thing. And that's very disruptive yes. for us and trying to figure out what that means. So like we see that like cryptocurrency is very networked. The world has gotten much more global. And I think so many of the problems we're seeing is that this is just really thrown us for a loop. Like we feel like this is a good move forward in a lot of ways, but at the same time, it's disruptive. And um, how do we, I feel like the real work is, is is a lot of it's in the collective, like collectively dealing with FOMO and FUD and doing that together. But it's, we're, we're, it seems like we're figuring that out <laughs> as we go. Um, that's just a dropping in a little bit of a, another can of worms of potential space yeah, we, we should, can explore, we but I'm with, explore you, I'm with you on that. More, um, and, and I think this is a good conversation to have though, again, because I think this kind of conversation will make it a little bit easier to dive into that one. So, um, but I think there's a lot of juice in that. All right. Great. So seems like maybe this is a good stopping point. Yeah, I think so. I'd be very curious, um, to hear what listeners think. Um, I really welcome comments. Um, I know this is a new show, so we're slowly reaching out to more people, but um, it seemed like we had a quite a number of listens on the last episode. So if you're listening, I really encourage you to throw comments on uh, right now it's on SoundCloud. So you can get in there and I know you have to have an account um, uh, or, you know, I know we're on Twitter, so you can throw some, um, some replies at us, but uh, join us in this conversation. And um, yeah, that's what I see this as a conversation. Absolutely. And, um, and, and please support this show. Um, Yes, we're <laughs> um, not independently wealthy crypto investors. So we, uh, this is part of our living is doing podcasts and exploring these topics. And uh, um, we've got some pretty, uh, we, we actually received our first, uh, first uh, donation from uh, someone from Dash. So thank you for that. Yeah, that was. Dash. that was nice. And I'll, and I'll say that even if it's a small amount that might seem like it's not much uh, psychologically, for at least for me, seeing that's very encouraging. So even <laughs> if it's a tiny amount that someone took the time to do that is really touching. And you know, the kind of shows we're doing here is if we were doing a show on how to make a bajillion dollars in cryptocurrency, it's probably something that we could monetize more easily and find out how to make money. But the kind of things we're exploring here is not really about that. Um, so any support you can give us is uh, really appreciated. All right. 